One of the most important teachings of the Buddha is a teaching on the nature of mind. In it he says the mind is inherently or naturally radiant and pure. It is defiled by visiting or adventitious defilements. Adventitious means that it's not in its nature. The mind is inherently radiant and pure. It is defiled by visiting or adventitious defilements. When we hear a sound, and there's just knowing, or feel a sensation, or aware of a thought, in that moment of simple awareness of just knowing, It's very simple. The mind is inherently radiant, pure, when there's no defilement present, when there's no visiting defilement. The mind is clear, it's open like space, it's unobstructed. So a question which arises, if this is the nature of the mind, clear, unobstructed, open, pure, radiant, luminous. Why doesn't it seem like that? (laughs) Why don't we live in this space of radiance and clarity if this is the natural state? One of the major obscuring forces which keep us from living in this place of ease, of openness, are the forces of the afflictive emotions. These afflictive emotions arise at different times in our experience due to certain conditions. They're afflictive, they're called that, because when they're not seen and understood, with wisdom, they afflict us. They cause suffering to ourselves, and when we act on them, cause suffering to others. So what are these afflictive emotions? As is usually the case, the Buddha helped us out, and he just gave us this list. And I read it just by way of becoming familiar with the range of afflictive emotions that can arise in our experience. Covetousness and greed, ill will, anger, hostility, denigration of others, envy, jealousy, hypocrisy, fraud, obstinacy, Conceit, arrogance, vanity, negligence. I'm sure he could have gone on and on, but that will give you some idea of different mind states that arise, which are common in our experience at one time or another. These are not esoteric feelings. (laughs) They're part of our life drama. 
But often we don't even pay enough attention to realize that they're afflicting us and afflicting others. So the great task for all of us is to see when they arise, to be aware, to be mindful of them, and to learn how to work with all of them from a place of freedom, rather than being in a state of bondage to them. The first and most fundamental step step in working with these afflictive emotions, as well as with all others that may arise, is that of acknowledgement, acknowledgement that they're present, and acceptance. We have to be a little careful with the word acceptance, because it's often misunderstood. Sometimes people think, well, if you accept something, it means that it's justified, we justify its presence, or we condone its presence, or we wallow in whatever it is. That's not what acceptance means in this context. Acceptance means fully acknowledging that something is there. It's really another word for mindfulness. If we can't be accepting of these emotions as they arise, if we're denying them, if we deny that they're there, or if we're suppressing them, or if we're judging them, or also not seeing them, just being unaware that they're present, particularly with these afflictive mind states, it's impossible to be free. We need to see them. We need to open them. We need to be accepting of them if we want to be free in our experience of them. I had a very striking example of this in my first course with Upandita. And it was so revealing. Sometimes the the very worst experiences become the best teaching stories, because the worst experiences are often where we learn the most. I had gone in for an interview with him. This, this was a course, it was a very pressured course, you know, and so we were all, there was a lot of tension in the air. So the interviews were particularly traumatic. <laughs> and I went in and I reported something, and really half-consciously, somewhat unconsciously, I was just shading the truth of my experience. You know, I had thought something was really a good thing, and I thought it should be there for a while, and even after it had really left, I said, yeah, this is happening. And Upandita, who really is a master at tracking experience, and so he's able to know exactly what really can be there given the sequence of one's practice, he just looked at me and he said, that's not true. (laughs) And I was devastated. (laughs) And here was my teacher basically calling me a liar. 
And what was so devastating was that he was right. <laughs> that was a hard one. I mean, it really was. I felt humiliated and <laughs> terrible feelings. So when I finally recovered from the interview, which took several days, I realized that something very positive had happened from it. And that was the experience that actually acknowledging, being open to the fact that my mind would shade the truth, that my mind would tell a lie, created the space in me both to see it and to let it go. And for as long as I had been harboring this illusion, living under this delusion that, oh, my mind wouldn't lie, certainly not to my teacher, as long as I was living in that delusion, there was no possibility of seeing it clearly, because it was in the shadow. And if I didn't see it clearly, I had no possibility of not acting on it, of simply letting it go. And so seeing it, even if it was forced upon me, uh, became this great illumination. Carl Jung said something very much to the point about this. He said, one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making darkness conscious. The latter procedure, however, is disagreeable and therefore not popular. <laughs> you know, it's very disagreeable, especially at first. You know, as we see our shadow side, as we see all of these afflictive emotions that are unpleasant to say. Pride and envy and jealousy, and conceit and anger and fear and unworthiness, stupidity. You know, all the kinds of feelings that come up in us which are difficult to open to. Very often in the beginning of this process, as we begin the process of opening, what very often comes quite quickly is a lot of self-judgment. And then the self-judgment, of course, only makes us feel even worse. Sometimes, get the sense that we're just sinking in this morass of afflictive emotion. You know, whatever the emotions are themselves, and then are feeling bad about ourselves, and the self-judgment, and it's this whirlpool. Sometimes it's difficult to see, is there a way out of all this? At first, whenever Upandita would, or other teachers, would point out or reflect back you know, some defilement of mind, some kalesis, some afflictive emotion. The way my mind would hear it, it would always, I would always hear it as a judgment about myself. They'd be pointing something out, but it would get translated, oh, I'm bad, my practice is no good. And so it would just send me into a tailspin, this tailspin of depression. But after periods of practice, and it took a while, this whole attitude began to change a lot. And now I'm in a place where very often 
I'm delighted to see the defilements. You know, when I catch sort of a defilement in the mind, one of these afflictive emotions, a state that causes suffering, it's like I get an inner smile because I would much rather see it than not see it. In the seeing of it, in that light of awareness, there is the place of freedom. Then we have the space not to act on it, not to be lost in it, not to be identified with it. And so we can change our whole attitude about opening up to these mind states. In the Buddhist texts, very often uh, we read when the Buddha would notice Mara, you know, the personification of ignorance, really. Whenever the, the Buddha would notice Mara lurking around in one form or another, the, the classic line is, Mara, I see you. And it's really a powerful line. And I think there's, there's a kind of mudra, movement, that can go along with it. I call it wagging the finger at Mara. <laughs> oh, Mara, I see you. So instead of taking it as a self-judgment, or feeling bad about oneself, it's really to delight in the fact that we are seeing it. Because in the seeing is a real taste of freedom. So how do we go about making the darkness conscious? How do we illuminate this shadow side of ourselves? Even when we have the willingness, we have the interest, we have the motivation, we have the courage to see. And we have that, and let me see, let me see what's there. Still, there are different kinds of obstacles that present themselves to clear seeing. The first and necessary step in acceptance in becoming accepting of all of these mind states or reflective emotions is a clear recognition of them. A clear recognition of what it is that's arising. But this is not always so easy. Emotions are difficult to observe precisely. They're not so neatly outlined you know, as a sound, or a sensation, or even a thought. We may miss a lot of thoughts, but still a thought has a definite beginning, middle, and end, and, you know, we can develop some facility of actually seeing it as arising and passing. Emotions are much more amorphous. It's very hard to get a fix on a mood because it's not so clearly outlined, so clearly delimited. And so the technique or the methodology for getting a clear recognition of it is actually quite different than we might use with a sensation or a sound or a thought. It's not so much focusing in on it, but rather stepping back and opening up. 
We need to step back, open up, and it's as if either literally or metaphorically, we settle back, we open up, and we ask the question, what's happening? What is this? So we open up in a very receptive way to feeling it, not trying to pinpoint it. Some emotions, even as we open up and we settle back and we see what we ask what's happening, it may not be clear to us. Maybe the mind state or the emotion is one of confusion. It's one of chaos. It's one of murkiness. Sometimes I think of some of these mind states. I don't know whether you're familiar with the Jackson Pollock paintings. You know, it's just this swirl. You know, of color and lines and paint and form and with no apparent order at all. And what we need to do is kind of back up and just take the whole thing in. The same thing with many of these mind states. We need to step back and just take the whole thing in. Confusion. We make a frame around confusion rather than trying to pinpoint things within it. We make a frame around chaos. Okay, we step back, become aware of that. Clear recognition is the first step in acceptance. Just a couple of examples. One of the one of the times I was practicing in Burma, as you know from many of the stories we've told, it's a very noisy place to practice. You know, at the monastery we were at, just loudspeakers and construction and it was really like living in a din. Sometimes, sometimes I couldn't believe it. I thought I was in a madhouse. <laughs> you know, because it was this din of noise often. And for quite a while, while I was there, I was sort of walking around with hmm, <laughs> that kind of feeling. I, was just, I don't quite know what, what the right word is. <laughs> Grumpy. But I wasn't quite aware of what was going on. I just kind of felt this heaviness and this, this irritability. Until a certain point, I just stopped and did this move of stepping back and asking myself the question, what's going on? What is actually arising? And I saw that the feeling that was in my mind, it was just a complaining. It was a complaining mind. There was this undercurrent. You know, of complaining. I hadn't noticed it. I hadn't been clear. I didn't recognize it. And until I did, I was caught in it. As soon as I was able to identify it clearly, oh, that's what that is. Complaining, complaining. That feeling began to exist in a, in a much greater open space of acceptance, and it washed through a lot quicker. So we need to recognize clearly what it is that's happening. Sometimes we don't recognize things because we misperceive. We take one emotion to be another. Just as an example of this, at one point in my practice, I was feeling a lot of sadness. 
And I was noting sad, 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 for days, sad, sad. <laughs> and again, finally, I heard something is off here. You know, it didn't feel like I was really connecting in some way. Step back, I just took another look. Okay, what is really here? And in that second look, in that further investigation, I saw that it wasn't sadness. It was unhappiness. And they're close, but they're different. They're different emotions. And as long as I was misaligned, as long as I didn't recognize it clearly, it's like my awareness was slightly off. And because it was misaligned, it couldn't be accepting. Because I didn't have a clear perception of what was there. As soon as I got it, as soon as, oh, that's unhappiness, in that moment the acceptance became possible, and again, the energy started moving, started washing through. So we want to look in terms of clear recognition. First, if we're ignoring something or something's underground, we want to open to it. Even when we see something, and if we still feel really stuck in it, we might want to take a second look and see if the recognition is accurate. There's another way in which we don't, we often don't perceive what's really going on accurately or clearly. And that's the situation that comes commonly when emotions arise, not singly, but in a cluster. There's a constellation of feelings. It's not a single feeling. And so we may recognize the surface one, the top one, and miss what's underneath. I've experienced this a few times in different situations with anger. Anger would arise, and I'd note it and note it. And I knew it was anger. It was clearly anger. But it still felt stuck in some way. I felt stuck in it. So then I would look further and underneath, and I began to notice that there were feelings underneath which were fueling the anger and which I hadn't been noticing. And as long as I didn't notice what was underneath, even though I was recognizing and noting the anger, it still kept going on and on and on because the underground spring was feeding it. Some emotions that feed anger, and this is just an example, we each have our own patterns. A major one is a feeling of hurt. If we're hurt in some way and we feel hurt, that can be underneath the anger. Another one is self-righteousness. I notice this really strongly. Angry about something. I'm right. (laughs) I should be angry. That person did this, this, and this. Until we notice these feelings underneath, they just keep feeding it. Sometimes fear is underneath anger. I had one recent experience. I have this one relationship with a long, long time friend. But we have a pattern of communication. We're going along fine. You know, and it's good feeling. But periodically, we'll have a conversation and 
I'll feel attacked. And that's, that's the feeling. Usually what happens is, when that happens, my response is anger. And just the anger arises. So this happened once, and then I was on retreat for a while. And as I was thinking about the situation, you know, and what had happened, I, <laughs> I was getting angry and self-righteousness about it, and you know, I should feel angry. But still, it kept coming and coming and coming. This was going on for a few days. Again, that same, that same method, just stepping back, opening up, looking, well, what's underneath here? And I realized that I hadn't been acknowledging, I hadn't been opening to, I hadn't really been allowing that feeling of being attacked. That's a certain feeling that we have. Because it's basically unpleasant, I had not been open to it, and really hardly acknowledging it, but all the time underneath, it was feeding these other feelings of the anger. As soon as I got it, oh yeah, this is the feeling of being attacked. That's okay. It's a feeling, like anything else. It was okay. I didn't have to protect myself against it. As soon as I opened myself to that feeling, oh yeah, being attacked, being attacked, being attacked. It was okay. I got accepting of that feeling. And again, the whole mess started to wash through. So it's just interesting to begin to see how often afflictive mind states don't come singly. You know, they come in constellations, and we may have to look underneath. Some other examples, you know, if maybe when there's jealousy arising in the mind, or grief arising in the mind, and note it, note it, note it, but still feeling caught in it, maybe underneath the grief, or underneath the jealousy, underneath the sadness, maybe there's a feeling of loss, or feeling of abandonment. If we're not acknowledging, if we don't see that, so then it keeps fueling the grief, it keeps fueling the jealousy, or whatever. It's not to say that every time in the moment that we recognize what's underneath, you know, the underground spring that's feeding the more surface emotions, it's not to say that in that moment everything is going to open up and disappear and we're going to be in bliss again. But what does happen is that the acceptance of the full range of the emotion, when we see the whole picture, that makes possible the quality of acceptance because we're seeing it. If we don't recognize it, we can't be accepting of it. In the clear seeing, there's the acceptance, and in the acceptance, there's a much greater ease and spaciousness. And so then the emotions just start to wash through, even if they stay for some time, It's not that feeling of being locked into them. One caution with this. This kind of investigation is not discursive. It's not a delving into your emotional, psychological history. You know, and just doing a little self-therapy. That's not what this is about. 
it's in the moment, it's intuitive, it's just dropping down and seeing directly, immediately, intimately. It's not thinking about it. And so it's important, it's important just to see these two different ways. Okay, so sometimes we don't recognize because we're just ignoring, like I was with the complaining mind. Sometimes we misperceive, like with the sadness and unhappiness. Sometimes we're not accepting because there's more going on underneath, which we haven't opened to. Sometimes we don't recognize and therefore accept afflictive emotions because the emotions are too unpleasant, they're too uncomfortable, and we can establish very strong patterns of denial. It's interesting to see for each of us which are the emotions which we just don't want to feel. Fear, shame, embarrassment, anxiety, rage, whatever. We each have our own collection. Patterns of avoidance can be quite deep in us. There's one story which epitomizes this, and it's one of my favorite stories. It was told to me by a friend of mine about his grandfather and his father. And they were driving along, the grandfather and the father were driving along in a car. And the father was, at that time, a young boy. This was in the early 1940s. And they were listening to the radio as they were driving the car. And it happened to be December 7th, 1941. And so the radio announcer comes on, announcing the attack on Pearl Harbor. And the first thing the grandfather says to the father is, don't tell your mother. (laughs) Well, that's a big one to avoid. (laughs) World War II. So it's in us very deep, you know. (laughs) We do this with ourselves, you know. It's like certain emotions come and we just don't want to tell ourselves. How much of what we do in our lives revolves about, revolves around the avoidance of certain feelings. I think a good part of our culture is built around the avoidance of boredom. We've just created this amazing array of toys to amuse ourselves so that we're never bored. Or how much of what we do in our lives is such so that we never feel lonely, or never feel this, or never feel that. You know, we just, out of avoidance, out of denial, we create a whole way of living that's very defensive. It's like we have to construct a lifestyle that does everything to keep these particular afflictive emotions out. It's not a very easy way to live.
Sometimes we don't acknowledge or open to these afflictive emotions, not only because they're unpleasant, but maybe because they don't fit the image of ourselves as a spiritual person. You know, well, meditators, real spiritual people don't feel anger, or they don't feel pride or whatever. And so if we're really fixed on this idea of how we should be, then it just keeps on denying the possibility, the existence that anger might actually be there, spiritual person or not. Pride may be there, dishonesty may be there, and most likely is at one time or another. So we want to be careful about not constructing an image of ourselves which actually prevents us from seeing clearly, because that's really then creating a system of self-delusion. One indication of non-acceptance, and we all will find our own signals, but one indication that we're not accepting something, that something is going on that we're not open to, is a feeling of struggle, whether it's in our practice or in our lives. You know, when we're, when we're going through something, whether it's a sitting or a walking or after the retreat and being in the world, when we're going through something and there's just this struggle, there's this friction, this... what does struggle mean? Struggle means that there's some experience And it might be an emotion, it might be a body feeling, it might be pain, it might be an unpleasant situation around us. Struggle means that there's something going on which we are not accepting, and that's the struggle. So in retrospect, we can take it as feedback. Often we don't see it as it arises, but we can take the sense of struggle, that feeling, as feedback to us. Let it be a signal, a bell. If you're struggling, stop a moment, ask yourself, what am I not opening to here? Is it some emotion? Is it a pain in the body? Is it something unpleasant outside? Because as soon as we open to it, as soon as we recognize it, as soon as we can become accepting of whatever it is, again the mind comes to a place of ease. From this place of ease, of spaciousness, of clear recognition, of acceptance, we can then begin to bring wisdom into this realm, this domain of emotion. we begin to discriminate between skillful and unskillful mind states. Skillful means those which bring happiness. Unskillful means those which bring suffering for ourselves and other people. We need to be able to discriminate. But this is also a very delicate matter. For many people, 
it's an easy step from saying that pride is unskillful or unwholesome to beginning to feel that I'm unskillful and I'm unwholesome. That's a step that a lot of people make. Or the step that says, yes, pride or greed or whatever is an unskillful mind state. Very easy to take another step and say, it's wrong that it has arisen. This is a mistake. These are not the implications of the discrimination between skillful and unskillful, wholesome and unwholesome. And if we confuse this, if we go down that path from recognizing what's skillful and unskillful to then interpreting it as this shouldn't have happened or I'm bad because it's happened, then again it just becomes the cause of more self-judgment, more unworthiness, more afflictive emotions, and we're in this whole spiral again. It's not a helpful cycle. We have all been conditioned in many different ways. For each of us, certain emotional patterns predominate. This is the nature of our body and our mind. In the Buddhist psychology, people are divided into personality types. One of us will give a whole talk on this, and it's quite amusing. (laughs) But there's a greedy type, there's an angry type, there's a deluded type. And then there's also the positive side of these. The positive side of greed is faith. The positive side of hatred or ill will is discriminating discernment. What's important to know is that We are conditioned one way or another. It's important to discriminate between what's skillful and what's unskillful, not in order to judge ourselves. That's not the point of it. And not to be reactive to the mind state. That's not the point of it. But rather, this wise discrimination, these emotions, these mind states, are wholesome, are skillful. They lead to happiness. These are unwholesome. These are unskillful. They lead to unhappiness. It's for the purpose of determining which ones should be cultivated, which should be strengthened, which will be onward leading in our lives and the lives of others, and which ones should be seen and abandoned let go of, are not onward leading, lead to suffering for ourselves and others. That's all. If we don't exercise this discriminating wisdom, if we don't begin to see, yes, these are skillful mind states, these are unskillful, if we don't bring this wisdom to the realm of our emotional experience, then we stay locked in very often to patterns that cause suffering for ourselves, that are afflicting us. 
And it's easy to do this. It's a very subtle matter. Quite a few years ago, I was invited to teach a metta retreat at a Trappist monastery in Snowmass, Colorado. It's a very liberal monastery, obviously, since they invited me. You know, kind of an outside Buddhist coming in to teach meditation. And just before I had gotten there, they had had sort of a new age workshop on working with emotions. And what they had been taught and practicing, as they expressed it, was to honor your anger. And so they had been doing this, and then I came. (laughs) And they told me about this. And I knew what sort of the idea was, you know, and that there was some merit in the idea, but just in that expression, it just sort of, something doesn't sound right here. And upon reflection, it seemed to me a confusion between honoring the anger as a mind state and honoring the fact that it has arisen. These are two very different things. Anger, and for anger, we could substitute anything. It could be pride, it could be greed, it could be jealousy, it could be envy, it could be that whole long list of the Buddhas. The point is not to honor unskillful mindsets. That doesn't make sense. These are states to be let go of. We do have to honor the fact that they have arisen. So there's not a sense of denial, of judgment, of pushing away of avoiding. We want to be with it, we want to feel it, we want to understand it. But with a real wisdom of seeing, yes, this is worth cultivating, this is worth letting go of. It is this wise discrimination which is precisely the bringing into the field of our psychological understanding, the realm of morality. And this is not something that's often done in our psychological culture. But this was the great, one of the great gifts of the Buddha. He was able to discriminate, he was able to see that this is skillful, this is unskillful, cultivate this, abandon this. And in some way, this is the basis of the whole spiritual life. It's particularly important to know what's what when these different feelings or emotions become the motivation for action. What is it that's motivating the acts that we do? (coughs) Sometimes these distinctions are very obvious. We don't need a lot of uh, subtlety to see it. Hatred is not a great idea. You know, it's suffering for us. When we are caught in it, when we're identified with it, when we act on it, it's suffering for the people around us. Love is a pretty good idea. You know, when there's really love present, It makes us happy, it makes the people around us happy. 
That's not hard to say, you know. Greed. <laughs> it's pretty obvious. Generosity. These we can distinguish quite easily. But there are some feelings which are very hard to distinguish. And sometimes we misperceive and we take some mind states which are unwholesome, unskillful, to be wholesome. And because we're not seeing it clearly, we just stay caught up, we stay bound in a world of suffering. Just a few examples of this. Sometimes in our lives and in our relationships, we confuse the feeling of attachment and love. Because so often they're intertwined. But they're two very different feelings. They're very different mind states. Attachment is a holding on. Love is a generosity. It's a generosity of the heart. It's not a holding on. But if we misperceive this, if we're taking the feeling of attachment to be that of love, so then we just go on continuing it. And we stay caught in the suffering that attachment brings. All because we haven't discerned clearly enough. Something else we confuse a lot on the other side, and that is the feeling of guilt and remorse. We've all done unskillful things in our lives. When we reflect upon them, very often we feel guilty. The feeling of guilt arises. Guilt is not wholesome because it really is constellated around a sense of self. It's an ego trip. I'm so bad because I did this. There's a lot of I, a lot of self in guilt. And so we get contracted in this negative state. Remorse is quite a different feeling. Remorse is a feeling that acknowledges that something unskillful was done. We see it, we open to it, we recognize it. And there's a certain spaciousness, a certain forgiveness of ourselves. Yeah, I won't do that again. Very different feeling. But how often do we beat ourselves with guilt feeling it's justified? Well, I should feel this because I did this, this, and this. We need to see clearly, bring this wisdom to the realm of our emotions, of our mind states. There are a lot of things we confuse with compassion. And in another talk, I'll go through a lot of them. But there's one in particular I wanted to mention tonight, which is very unlikely. I don't think normally we would think that we would confuse these two, but we do sometimes. And that is we confuse sloth and compassion. Sitting and walking, and it's kind of late at night, and you're feeling tired. Oh, I'll be good to myself. I'll just take some rest now. You know, and there's really that sense, yeah, I'm just being compassionate to myself and taking care of myself. And <laughs> it might be that. <laughs> but more often than not, it's not really compassion. It's really the working of sloth, because one of the attributes of sloth and torpor, it's not only sleepiness, it's the quality of mind which retreats from difficulty. 
That's, that's one of the meanings of sloth. And it's just interesting to watch how very often when we're up against a difficulty in our practice, we can confuse that sense of retreating, of pulling back, of not wanting to face the difficulty with the feeling of compassion. If we think it's compassion, oh, this should be cultivated. (laughs) So seeing clearly is essential if we really want to free the mind. So we talked about acceptance, talked about clear recognition, about the wise discrimination, the seeing clearly of which states of mind lead to suffering, which states of mind lead to peace, lead to freedom. We need to see that. The next step in working with emotions is the most difficult and also the most liberating. And that is learning how, at the same time that we open to the feelings, whatever they are, whether they're the afflictive emotions or wonderful emotions, to learn how, at the same time that we open to them and feel them, not to identify with them. And this is really the crux of the practice It's this understanding which makes possible the transformation of whatever state arises, afflictive emotions included. It's this understanding which makes possible the transformation of the state, whatever it is, into freedom, into wisdom. What does identification with emotions mean? It means that sense of I and mine. I'm angry, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm compassionate, I'm loving, I'm fearful. It's that I which we add to the experience. This I is extra. It's not in the emotion itself. It's an extra process. And you can notice when we do identify with the emotions, we can notice that sense of contraction, that sense of imprisonment. But it's difficult to see the possibility of opening to emotions without identification because they're the part of our experience which we most easily personalize. Even when we see that thoughts are coming and going and sensations and everything else, the emotions, they are what really seem to be who we are. So how can we explore our relationship to emotions that keeps us both open to them and also free in them, not imprisoned by this sense of self? Every experience, emotions included, arise out of certain conditions and they disappear when the conditions change. And every experience is essentially empty, insubstantial, essenceless, 
selfless. There's no self in any of them. Experience, and particularly emotions in this case, don't belong to anyone. And it's because of this that any experience can bring us to wisdom. We can see the empty nature of things with anything that's arising, with anger, with fear, with love, with whatever's arising. We can see its empty nature. A large part of what conditions the particular emotions that arise is our level of understanding. And so what might make one person quite unhappy, quite miserable, would leave another person quite at ease. A story, this is a wonderful story which illustrates this. There's the story of Ryokan. You know, the Zen monk and poet, wonderful being. He was living alone up in the mountains in a little hut, very poor. And one night he came back to his hut and he saw that even his few meager possessions had been stolen. And he wrote this haiku, The moon at the window, the thief left it behind. Just imagine going home at the end of this retreat. Everything's stolen. Everything. Your apartment, your house is wiped out. Oh, the moon at the window. (laughs) The thief left it behind. Depending on our level of understanding of wisdom, we'll either be very upset or quite free. So it's not that emotions are who we are, they're conditioned by many different things. Because of this, this arises. Conditions change, our levels of understanding change, the feelings that arise in us change. It's not that they're they're so fixed and it's not that they're who we are. Just read a couple of uh, verses from the Buddha teaching in this regard. Forms and sounds and flavors and smells and touches and all mental states are wished for, cherished and pleasing, as long as it's said they're real. For the world and for its devas, these are equal to happiness, whereas when they come to an end, this for them is pain. Happiness viewed by the nobles comes from restraining the ego. This is just the opposite of how it is seen by the world. That which is pleasant for others, for the noble ones, is painful. And what for others is painful, the noble ones know is pleasant. And I like it because it just throws it all up in the air. You know, but usually we're so fixed in how we think of ourselves and how we feel. Well, it's natural to feel a certain way. It's not natural. It's just how we feel is dependent on certain conditions. So understanding the conditional nature of these mind states, emotions, afflictive emotions, begins to loosen our identification with them. We see that they're not I, they're not self. They're just the product of certain conditions. Notice the difference in your practice when these states arise and there's the feeling 
I'm angry, I'm happy, I'm sad. Notice the difference between that and the feeling, the understanding, there's happiness present, there's sadness present, there's whatever. When there's no identification, no sense of self, the simple acknowledgement, simple feeling of whatever is present. This distinction between identifying with emotions and being open to them without the sense of self, this is the doorway to freedom. It's a very important place to look. True selflessness comes out of openness. It comes out of clarity. It comes out of acceptance. All mind states, all emotions, the afflictive ones, the pleasant ones, they're like clouds passing through the sky. These states, they have no roots. They have no home. Can we liberate ourselves in the experience of this whole passing show, of this whole display of mind state of emotion? Letting them all pass through this open sky, this open space of the heart and mind. Working with the afflictive emotions in this way becomes the practice of freedom for us. It's a tremendously fruitful field. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.